Our scripture passage today is John 14, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Thanks be to God. We are starting a new sermon series today. It's our Advent series. And it will take us all the way through Christmas. And it's a sermon series on heaven. We thought to ourselves, you know, we just finished a series in Revelation, one of the most confusing and misunderstood books of the Bible. So let's keep going. Let's talk about heaven. You know, Advent is a season of waiting. Kids make paper chains, counting down the days until they can open up presents and under the tree. And we mark time in our Advent calendars. From the earliest days of the Christian church, Advent has been a season of waiting and a season of preparation. It's a time to prepare for the celebration of Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' first coming. It's also a time to remember and to look forward to Jesus' promise that he would come again, that he would make all things new, to unite heaven and earth. But what is heaven? And when we wait for heaven, just what exactly are we waiting for? This Advent season, we are together as a church, we're going to look at what the Bible says about heaven and what we are waiting for and aching for. We just finished a new series in Revelation last week. Gabe talked about the new heavens and the new earth, and you might remember that he used language of home to describe it. He, he prompted us to start thinking about heaven as a home. And he primed the pump for us by pointing out that we all long for home. This week you'll notice the same image, the same language comes out of our passage. John records for us the words that Jesus chooses to use to describe heaven. And those, that word, that image that Jesus chooses to use in our passage is a house, rather a home. So home, what does that word mean to you? We all have unique and particular memories associated with that word. For some of us, really good memories come to mind. For others of us, perhaps we're flooded by memories that we'd, we'd like to forget. But regardless, we all have this longing. We have this shared understanding of what home should be, right? I mean, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is dominated by family gatherings, eating, food, and all of this takes place in a home. When we imagine the idyllic Thanksgiving, we imagine the best of what home should be. Home is a place of welcome. Home is a place of belonging. It's a place of love, a place of shared joy. It's a place that fills up our empty tank. 
And if this was your experience of Thanksgiving, that's lovely, and you are very blessed. But for many, that very well might have not been the case. And in reality, these family gatherings rarely tend to look like what our imagination says they should be or what our imagination says home should be. And that can cause us significant distress at times. Even if we haven't experienced home as we imagine it, we all have this longing for it and we have a longing to experience it. It's almost like if, if this was pre-existent within us. Maya Angelou, a prolific poet and civil rights activist, she once wrote this. She said, the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. The ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. She has her finger on something here. There's this ache in us, a longing in us, a longing for home. What is home? It's a place to be, a place for us, for who we really are, all the parts of us. It's a place of welcome, of belonging, a place filled with love. Again, in our passage today, the word Jesus chooses, he chooses to use a word to describe heaven to his disciples in a really pivotal moment in their lives and in his life. And the word that he chooses to use is home. Home, this place that we ache for. And I want to take time to mention here that questions about heaven are questions we rarely ask out loud. Even as Christians, heaven is a topic that I think we spend just as much time ignoring as we do hoping for it in the midst of our busyness and planning and running around. But it's the question felt at almost every funeral, which is why we don't like going or we might not like going. And it creeps up in our minds and our hearts whenever we consider our own inevitable passing from this world. Even the most faithful among us, I would wager, have asked this question or will ask this question, is heaven real? For some of you right now, that's a, that's a genuine question. You're questioning the realness of heaven, and I get that. And you may be unf unfamiliar with the concept of heaven from a biblical perspective, or you may doubt its existence. And perhaps all you've heard of heaven is a cultural understanding of it. There are baby angels with bows and arrows, or, or it's the place where St. Peter makes fun of us at the gate and he doesn't let us in. For others, I wonder, though, we, if we don't have a cognitive problem with the concept of heaven, but we have a heart problem. Perhaps we're half-hearted in our belief about heaven. We don't think about it. It has very little impact on our daily lives. So to begin our exploration of heaven, there's one main question I want to ask you today. And this question will guide us through our passage. Here it is. What if heaven really is our home? 
What if heaven really is our home? If that's true, what if we could embrace that reality with confidence? How would that change the way we live and approach ourselves and the world? If heaven is true and real, then it's not just something that lives in the future. No, it can't. It, it lays claim on us now. It would orient our decision-making in many different ways. It would grant us security. It would offer us hope. If heaven really is our home, it has consequences for us right now. And honestly, that's precisely the point that Jesus is making to his disciples in our passage. Jesus, in declaring the realness of heaven being our home, he offers us two different takeaways, two consequences that this reality brings to bear on our lives now. The first question, or the first consequence, rather, is this. If heaven is our home, then we don't have to be troubled. Take a look with me. If you have a Bible handy, turn with me to Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. We're in John chapter 14, verse 1. If heaven is our home, we don't have to be troubled. This is where Jesus begins. It's the first thing that he says in our passage. He says it simply, gently, and, and compassionately. Let not your hearts be troubled. In the original language, the word trouble is terasso. It, it means to be stirred up, to, to be shaken up. And we find it used in, in different places in John. We find it used earlier in John, in John 5. And in this chapter, John records an account of Jesus healing someone. And John says that Jesus walked to a pool, this pool called Bethesda, and it was a place infamous in those days because it was mainly frequented by people who had many types of ailments. And John says as much. He says that there were multitudes of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they went there because the waters were understood to have healing properties. They were meant to soothe the body. And so Jesus comes to a man who's laid out on the side of the pool. And John says this man has been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, the man says he can't physically get himself up to go to the water. And he wants to go to the water when the water is stirred up. It's the same word. This word doesn't just apply to external realities like water being stirred up. It also applies to internal realities. It accounts for internal turmoil too, distress, confusion, fear. Our passage this morning takes place in a section of scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a long teaching, a long conversation that Jesus has with his disciples to prepare, him, prepare them for the crucifixion that's about to come. It's going to be one of the longest and darkest nights of each of their lives. And in chapter 13, the chapter right before our passage, Jesus decides to wash his disciples' feet. He prophesies that one of them, Judas, would betray him. Jesus also tells the disciples that he would be going away. Literally right before our passage, Peter tells Jesus, Listen, Jesus, I want to follow you. Wherever you're going, I want to go with you. I will even lay my life down for you, Jesus. 
But Jesus responds to him. He says, actually, Peter, you, one of my closest companions, you're going to deny that you ever even knew me. By the time we get to our passage, the disciples are disturbed and they're probably threatened by what Jesus said. They're afraid. They're asking, what's going to happen? They're confused. They're uncertain. And Jesus, after all of this, as their friend, as their companion who has lived with them, and as God himself, he looks at them and he says to them, let not yourselves be troubled. Don't be troubled. As I was talking this passage over with a friend, he pointed out that he couldn't help but think about the intimacy of this moment. I mean, this is God himself standing in front of them, standing in front of Peter, who was just told by God that he would end up betraying him. And God says, don't be troubled. And as I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but think of myself and think of all of us when we come to church on Sundays or when we turn on the service on our computers or our phones. We bring with us into the service just a myriad of external and internal things in our lives that are uncertain. For one, the world is in turmoil. It's in confusion over a pandemic that has swept through and devastated most of the world. We bring that reality with us. We bring the heaviness of that, the stress of that. I keep hearing from people over, again, over and over again that they are just exhausted. And I get it because 2020 has been stressful. It's been a complex year with pandemic and, and racial wounds. It's been a confusing at times. And I'm, I'm thinking of each of us as we're trying to discern what is fake news and what is not and what the election results are. For many of us, the journey of 2020 has been personal. We've had vocational confusion and instability brought about by economic issues, economic impacts from the virus. And beyond that, of course, many of us have had family issues. We've had grief and loss. All of these things, each one, we bring with us into this moment, into a service, into hearing a sermon, and then internally, some of us are dealing with depression. We deal with shame about decision, decisions we have made or are making. And I'll speak for myself now. There are times when my heart is so troubled by sin, my sin. And then there's self-loathing that's also wrapped up in that. You see, the waters of our world and the waters of our soul are so stirred up. They're shaken up. But what if Jesus stood before you and he looked at you and he spoke to that stirred up water of your soul and he said to it, stop, be still, be at peace, don't be troubled. Jesus does stand before us and he stands before you and he says, be still. Friends, if heaven really is our home, 
we have no reason to be deeply consumed by trouble. Because we can and we should have the perspective that all of this is temporary. Not that it doesn't matter, of course. But one day, one day, all of this will pass away. Our triune God, the Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, one day will bring us home to himself. And in that home, in that new Jerusalem, that place where God himself dwells with us, a place of eternal peace, and we learned this last week in Revelation 21, that place, in that place, all will be made right. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no pain, no crying. All of this will pass away. The waters of our soul and the waters of our world will be at peace. That, friends, is on the horizon. And we know, we know that it's our destiny. It's the destination of us and our world. If heaven is real, if heaven is our home, we have no reason to be consumed by trouble. Certainly, we will have times of grief. We'll have times of confusion and fear and uncertainty. All of that is true. But instead of that consuming us and dominating our soul, and I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to any of you, but what we have is a ballast of peace that gives us endurance and it gives us hope, a hope that picks us up, that lifts our heads and forces our eyes to see the horizon line. And that home awaits us sooner than we think. Jesus says to us, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a home for you. And it will have all that you need. It will have many rooms. It will have all the resources that you need. If heaven is real, we don't have to be troubled. Even though I feel like that point is a sermon in and of itself, Jesus doesn't stop there in our passage. He continues on. And we learn from him that if heaven is our home, then we don't have to find a way there. We already know it. Look with me at verse 5. Thomas asks Jesus a question there. And Thomas, in John's gospel, is a courageous and loyal disciple. But he also has many apprehensions and doubts. And what's revealed in his response to Jesus is just that he hasn't really come to terms with what Jesus is saying about the destination, about heaven. He asks Jesus this, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I love that honesty. I think Thomas is being honest here. There's a deep sense of urgency that I sense in that question, maybe even some frustration. He's saying, what is the way? How do we get there? Tell us how we get there before you go. And in some ways, isn't Thomas speaking the truth about humanity's relationship to heaven? And bear with me here. But we don't know how to get to heaven. But we know we, we want to go there. I mean, it seems that there are innumerable religions 
and cults throughout the course of human history that have tried to figure out how to get to heaven. And each one has said that they have it figured out. I was just watching a documentary on Netflix about a recent uncovering of a tomb in Egypt, and it had been left undisturbed for centuries. It's unbelievable. The archaeologists are walking into the tomb that has been left untouched for thousands of years. And one of the things the documentary explains is the nature of how tombs operated as a place, a bridge to the afterlife, and how this ancient culture had created an ornate system of myths to tell about how the soul would go about going on a journey into the afterlife. The journey would consist of judges weighing out your deeds in a court of law and literally weighing your heart versus a feather. And if it didn't pass, if it weighed heavier than the feather, then it would be consumed. And then you'd move into sailing across a sea and hopefully you would get to the Sea of Reeds and then one time getting to the afterlife at some point. The documentary is called The Secrets of the Sakura Tomb, in case you're wondering and want to check it out. But just consider for, a, for the moment the myriad of, of religions that try to answer this question. What is the road to the afterlife? How do we attain to it? How do we get ourselves there? When Thomas asks this question, how can we know the way? I think that's the question he's asking. That word way there in the original Greek, it's the same word for road, hados. In essence, Thomas is asking, Jesus, how do we attain to it? What is the road? How do we get ourselves there? And Jesus' answer, it's probably one that shocks Thomas, but it also shocks all religions. Jesus says you don't attain to it. You can't get yourself there. I am the way. I am the road. And this is one of the great claims of Jesus in the New Testament. If anyone thinks Jesus is a great teacher and didn't make claims of divinity, then they should read the Gospel of John. It's a great place to start. Many, in many places, even more clearly stated than in our passage this morning, Jesus claims to be God. One example is just a few chapters before ours. Lazarus, a friend to Jesus, dies without Jesus being present. Jesus is away. and When he returns, he returns to a family who he loves, and this family is grieving. Martha, Lazarus's brother, she walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise from the dead, and Martha says that she knows he will rise, but it will be on the last day. And Jesus responds to her by saying this, and listen to see if it's familiar to what Jesus says in our passage. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He then asks Martha, do you believe this, Martha? And before Jesus even raises Lazarus from the dead, she, she responds to him right there. She says, yes. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. In our passage, Jesus is doing the same thing. In one statement, he lays claim to being the one 
exclusive road to heaven, the ultimate truth, the way to real life and eternal life. And that's not just a teaching on ethics and morality. It's no small claim. But there's something else that's just as astounding about this passage, other than Jesus' claim to be God. And it's, it's this. In this claim that he makes, he ends up putting his disciples, and he puts us by default, into a very passive position. And this is what I mean by that. Unlike other religions where we have to do and we have to attain, Jesus says, no, you don't attain to eternal life. You don't do in order to get there. He says, I am the road, me, I am the way. And look at verse three. He says this too, he says, I will go into the heavenly places and I will prepare a home for you. And then he even continues on, he says, if I go and prepare this place, then I will come back for you and I will take you there with me. You see how that puts us in a very passive place. Jesus is the active agent. He's the one doing it all. He's the one preparing. He's the one who goes. He's the one that comes back and he's the one that takes us there. We don't have to prepare. We don't have to go. We don't have to pick ourselves up and take ourselves there. No, Jesus does it all. So if that's the case, then what's our role? What role do we play in all of this? Well, it's clear to me that John is telling us through the words of Jesus that he has written down and recorded for us that our role is not to try to find or search or discover our way to heaven. And it's also clear that Jesus, he didn't blaze a trail for us and then command us to take the way that he took himself. No, Jesus' claim here is that he himself is the way. So instead, our role, the role that we have is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in our passage. The one thing that Jesus tells us to do, he says it in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, trust in God, trust in me. Our role is simple. It's to trust Him. It's to believe Him. It's to believe Him and what He says and to declare exactly what Martha declared. Yes, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's our role. It's just to be a believer. Thomas Akempis as a monk, and an author in the 15th century, and he's most famous for his book, The Imitation of Christ. He wrote this famous meditation on Jesus' claim here in John 14. And it goes like this. Follow thou me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I'm the way which thou must follow. I'm the truth which thou must believe. The life 
for which thou must hope. I am the invoyable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. The road to heaven has been revealed to us, to you and to me, in Jesus. Friends, if heaven is our home, we don't have to find our way there. We already know it. Jesus is it. You see, if heaven really is our home, then it has consequences for us today. It means that we don't have to spend time searching or trying to figure out how to get there or trying to prove our, to ourselves or to God that we are worthy of being there. The way is Jesus. The way has been prepared by Jesus. And all we have to do, what he asks of us, is to trust him, to believe him. That's what he asks of us. And if heaven really is our home, then that means our souls can be at peace in the midst of the chaos of our world and of our lives. Because with this hope, with heaven on the horizon, we have endurance. And I want to add one more thought as we close our time today. I want to come back to this idea that I talked about at the beginning, that home is this place that we long for. And if nothing I said this morning was convincing to you about heaven, that's okay. <laughs> I'm hoping that what I'm about to say might get you to stick around for the rest of the series. And this is it. If heaven is our home, then our longings for it actually make sense. If we are made for heaven, if it is our ultimate home, then our longing for it would seep out of us in a way. It, it, and I think it does. I think our desire for our home does seep out of us. C.S. Lewis was a Christian writer and, and professor of literature at Oxford. And he writes about this in his essays called The Weight of Glory. And he says that all of our deepest longings, and he goes through a number of them, the longing for beauty, for love, sex, and a desire to be known and be successful, all of these things, if we follow these desires and we do what they want us to do, we will become very conscious of the fact that we have desires that no natural happiness can satisfy. If we follow desires to their end, we will ultimately be left unsatisfied. And maybe you experience, you have experienced this in some way. C.S. Lewis asks, is there any reason to suppose that our reality doesn't actually offer us the satisfaction that we desire. Maybe those desires, maybe those longings, they represent a bigger longing for something that we don't know and we haven't yet been. You see, Lewis makes the argument that we are made for heaven, that heaven is our home, and the desire for that place is already in us. It, it's pre-existent within us. This desire expresses itself, it wanders around, and it becomes attached to things that are not ultimate. They're really just rivals of that thing that is ultimately the true object of our desires. And he says this, he says, the books or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It, beauty, is not in them. It only comes through them. And what came through them was actually longing. These things, beauty, the memory of our own past, 
These are good images of what we desire, but they're not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune that we haven't heard, news from a country we haven't yet visited. You see, the ache for home, it lives in all of us. We long for that safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Our desires, they, they point us to things or objects that are not the ends of our desire. But often we're too easily pleased by those objects to know the difference. Now our desires, they are an aroma. They're a longing. They're the smell of a home that we haven't yet been, but we are made for. And as we continue through our series and, and, and we go through Christmas, we're, we're hoping to keep exploring heaven. We want to ask and respond to the question, what is this place? What is the home that we're waiting for? And we hope that you would join us in our journey through this Advent season. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that you've promised us, promised us a hope a future. We're thankful that heaven lies in front of us and Jesus that you you give us that hope and that we don't have to be troubled by or consumed by trouble that, by things that are going on in our world right now and going on in our lives. Help us to rest in that peace that you offer us. And Lord, give us the, the ability to believe in you And help us to cry out with the centurion, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And now we move into our time of communion. And I'm reminded that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are join, joining into a community of those who are united in the hope of heaven. And every time we partake, we are praying, we are hoping, we are longing once again to be with Jesus Christ. So let me read into your hearing the words of institution from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 26. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. <laughs>